Hello, hello, this is Emily, and I'm here with Talia, and this is another episode of the Coalesce.Earth podcast. The purpose of the podcast is to generate greater connectivity in the field of campus sustainability and share some of the exciting conversations we're having with sustainability professionals with all of you. Today, we'll be speaking with a leader in the field of impact investing. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. We are joined by George Dyer of the Intentional Endowments Network. George, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, so let's start off. We'd love to have a brief overview. Could you tell our listeners how you got involved in sustainability and what your career trajectory has been? Absolutely. Yeah, it's been um, you know kind of a long journey for me. Um, I've had an interest sort of in social and environmental issues for a long time, and in my earliest memory of uh, a developing interest was actually around the Exxon Valdez spill and a project I did on that um, tragedy and kind of got me really thinking about, you know, what are sort of the most important things that we can can do with our lives. And um, that started me off at a young age on a um, path towards this field. Um, and, you know, some, some key moments sort of over the course uh, of my education and early career, um, I had the chance to go to a great program called the Mountain School in Vermont, which is affiliated with Milton Academy uh, in high school, which really helped, you know, put some of those concerns I had around these big issues into context um, and really also kind of shift my thinking from um, looking at some of the environmental and social problems into what are the solutions to those and how can we be proactive about creating solutions. Um, and that program, you know, is really based around organic farming and living in community with different people and, and how we can um, meet our needs in more effective ways. And so that was kind of a, a pivotal, formative experience for me. Um, and then, you know, kind of building on that, I, I took a year off between high school and college and uh, among other things, I uh, got a certification in permaculture design. And that was kind of the next step of really a solutions-based approach to these challenges. Um, we're kind of taking it to the next level of my thinking and development around it about really using systems thinking to look at these complex issues um, and design solutions accordingly. And so that was kind of another big step. And then, um, you know, in college, throughout college, I studied these issues in part. Um, I was an environmental studies minor, um, but another kind of influential book I read at that point was Natural Capitalism. And, it, and again, that sort of is very solutions-focused and systems-based um, and also kind of weaved in the, the power and importance of business in addressing these tough challenges. Um, and so those are some of the kind of formative points. And when I came out of college and was looking to develop a, you know, build a career in the sustainability field, um, I did some green building right out of school and then you know, looking to sort of get more into the business side of things, bounced around a little bit. You know, the field was still relatively young at that point. I graduated in 2001. Um, and so ended up going back and getting a job on Wall Street, just kind of a standard finance position, which um, actually gave me some great insight into you know, financial markets and how they work. Um, and again, the importance that they hold in addressing these sustainability challenges um, and so from there, I discovered, was you know, told about a great master's program over in Sweden, um, which is a master's in strategic leadership towards sustainability. And that really helped me tie together a lot of the things I've been sort of trying to piece together and, and build my um, work experience. 
into a more cohesive kind of framework around how businesses and organizations can take a strategic approach to sustainability. Um, and also tapping into a great international network of, you know, sustainability leaders working on different aspects, um, in the field. And so, uh, coming back from that program, I connected with Tony Cortese and second nature. Um, Tony, for folks who don't know him, has, has worked in the environmental and sustainability field for a long time, um, and ran a nonprofit called second nature for about 20 years. And this is about 10 years ago that I connected with him. Um, and he had helped, he had worked with, you know, he's sort of part of that international network affiliated with the master's program in Sweden that I went to. Um, and so that was how we connected and, and he was just launching, uh, working with Asia and Eco America and other partners to launch the American college and university president's climate commitment. Um, and so that was, uh, when we first connected and how, you know, I kind of started working in the higher edge space specifically, um, and, you know, we built that network out to about, you know, 700 schools that have made a commitment to carbon neutrality through that and are working on climate action plans, um, addressing everything that they do. And then uh, about three or four years ago now, as the student fossil fuel divestment movement was really picking up steam, um, we started getting a lot more questions from the schools we were working with about what the options were and how to respond. Um, and so that led to the creation of the Intentional Endowments Network and, and some of the work we're doing today. Thanks so much for sharing your background with us, George. I really admire the start of your thinking um, around the Exxon Valdez spill and your time at the Mountain School, this permaculture and systems thinking approach and all the different steps you've taken to explore the networks with and, um, and roles and organizations within the sustainability field. Um, speaking about the Intentional Endowments Network, can you give us and our listeners an idea of what the organization does, the mission and vision and work? Yeah, so I mean, it really grew out of a, um, a meeting we had about three years ago. And, um, you know, as I said, we're at Second Nature and supporting the President's Climate Commitment and started getting a lot of these questions um, around the same time. Jonathan Lash, who's the president of Hampshire College and was formerly the president of the World Resources Institute for many years, uh, was getting similar questions because, you know, they've been sort of involved in the social responsible investing space with their endowment for a long time since it was established, really. Um, but in 2011, kind of put in an updated uh, ESG, or Environmental Social Governance Investment Policy, um, and you know, started moving their investments out of fossil fuels. So he was getting a lot of questions about what they had done and why as well. Um, so we connected and it just seemed like a next step was there's a need for kind of a, a venue and space to have a conversation about what can be done in the various options. Um, and so, you know, that first event was about 120 people and the idea was to get, you know, about two thirds decision makers from colleges and universities and other endowed institutions, um, trust and, and to talk about, uh, you know, what the options were and connect with leaders in the sustainable investing field to learn more about kind of this current state of practice. Um, and also really importantly to connect with each other and, and hear how other institutions were thinking about this and going about the, the process of evaluating options. Um, and so coming out of that first meeting it was clear that there's kind of a lot of energy and, and need to continue those conversations. And so 
we established the Intentional Endowments Network um, in June of 2014, and it's you know it's a peer learning network is how we think about it, and um, it's really about bringing people together to explore these issues together and accelerate the learning and avoid reinventing the wheel um, and the like. And so the ways that we go about trying to facilitate that um, are through hosting meetings and getting people together in person, um, just knowledge exchange and trying to find the best resources that are out there and make them easily accessible in, in kind of one place where you can go and get the latest information. Um, and where there are sort of gaps in that, in terms of those types of resources, um, developing those and really leveraging the expertise within the network to do so. Um, and, and really, you know, at the heart of it, facilitating peer-to-peer learning. And so connecting people with um, colleagues from other institutions to advance progress more quickly. And who are you typically interacting with? Who are these resources and these workshops dedicated to? Are you working with CFOs? Are they for sustainability coordinators and practitioners, heads of school, trustees? Yeah, it can really be across the board in some ways, and it can really vary from school to school. Um, I mean, if I had to pick one or two sort of core constituencies, it's, it's really the trustees and the investment committee members. Um, as well as the CFOs and, and chief investment officers in many cases. Um, but oftentimes the president will be very involved, or head of school will be very involved in these conversations. Um, sometimes sustainability directors or, or uh, champions on the faculty or you know, student leaders um, will be coming to our events and involved in our conversations. And you know, again, the dynamics can be quite different from institution to institution depending on size and you know, culture and governance structure and the like. Um, and a lot of it does depend on endowment size. So, you know, some institutions with larger endowments have a whole separate corporation that's managing the endowment um, and a you know sizable staff and maybe their own board of trustees and the like. Whereas others with smaller endowments might just have you know volunteer investment committee really making the decisions or working with a consultant that's helping them through the process. Um, some will have an internal chief investment officer, or some will outsource that whole chief investment officer. Uh, capability to outsource CIO companies. So it can really vary. And um, as a result, we know we really designed this network to be broad-based and um, engage all parts of the the system. Um, And so because investment consultants and those outsourced CIOs and uh, investment managers that are working on these issues or approaching these issues from different directions and different asset classes, uh, I'll have a lot to add to this conversation and can answer a lot of the questions that might sometimes be barriers. And so, um, you know, I have different events kind of focused on different audiences, but in general, it's a pretty, pretty big tent. Mm-hmm. And for this, for the stakeholders that are attending these peer learning workshops, you know, what's the, what's the sentiment, you know, are they showing up because they're feeling pressured are they showing up because they have been, you know, specifically asked to by a trustee? Um, you know, are they nervous in these conversations? When you're facilitating these gatherings, how are people feeling? Yeah, again, I think it, there's really a pretty broad spectrum. And, I, and so in a way, I'd say all of the above to those options you laid out. Um, we certainly have had people, you know, Administrators or trustees kind of showing up and 
just saying flat out they're very skeptical about this, but they're getting student pressure or, you know, some other form of some other stakeholder or their boss or someone said, you know, go check this out. Um, and so we do get some, you know, kind of participants at least showing up initially, arms crossed and, you know, skeptical uh, looks on their face. But um, we also get a lot of people who are real champions and interested in wanting to do more, um, you know, say trustees who want to see their institution do more but aren't quite sure how to bring up the subject uh, on their in their board meetings or um, how to, you know, respond to some of the um, concerns or, you know, perceived barriers that some of their other trustees may have. And so they're kind of look there to look for more information or allies or support in, in moving the process forward at their own institutions. Um, and then, you know, kind of a lot in between, I think, of just, you know, some saying, okay, this is definitely an issue. We're hearing more and more about it. We better just go learn and, and kind of see what's going on. So it's really a pretty interesting range of uh, perspectives that show up. Yeah, that's for sure. And so to take a step back, um, you know, I'm sure CFOs and trustees are hearing about impact investing and all of these different terms that are being thrown around, you know, environmental, social governance, ESG, social responsible investing, sustainable investing, impact investing. Can you walk us through your definition and the definition of impact investing so our listeners all have that reference point as we go through this conversation? Yeah, absolutely. It is a very confusing space in, in that way. And it's new. I think it's kind of indicative of any new, exciting, emerging field in a sense. Um, but, you know, that's definitely one of the barriers, too, is people come and just say, what is this? All these acronyms and, you know, different people will define a lot of those terms differently. Um, and so it can be confusing. And again, that's one of the kind of core purposes we see of the network of just trying to help people come and, and get up to speed on those, even where there is that uncertainty, if there aren't clear, specific standard answers yet, um, just to give some sense that that's kind of okay, given where the field is. Um, I mean, we use the term sustainable investing generally as sort of a broad uh, umbrella term for all of those other ESG impact SRI terms. Um, and to get, to get at another level, the term SRI traditionally stood for socially responsible investing, and now a lot of people in the field refer to that as sustainable, responsible, and impact investing, just trying to keep the same acronym but kind of adapt or update for the kind of where the conversation is now. Um, so we could spend a lot of time, I think, going through what each of what how we define each of those or how others do. Um, we had developed one of the first things we did was develop a primer document that includes some definitions and just a little explanation about how those definitions can vary. And so there's kind of need to be a little bit careful when someone says some of these terms that you're on the same page in terms of what you're hearing is what they're intending to say. Um, and so that's online on our website, intentionalendowments.org. If anyone wants to go check that out and dive deeper. Um, but I think, you know, there's, and, and there, there's sort of a whole other field or, um, series of terms and approaches around more ethical investing or values-aligned investing or mission-aligned investing, um, which, again, some kind of put in the same bucket or some might see as a very different approach to thinking about these issues. Um, but I think, you know, when we talk about sustainable investing, again, kind of encompassing all of those different strategies and approaches, um, you know, one of the core things that, that we think about is just 
a long-term perspective and really recognizing that like with the sustainability movement as a whole, you know, given our trends in terms of population growth and consumption and resource scarcity and, um, you know, climate change impacts and ecosystem biodiversity loss, all of these interrelated mega trends um, are having and will increasingly have, you know, real tangible impacts on everything in our lives and how we govern, how we structure our communities and how we operate our businesses. Um, and so are therefore very important uh, investment considerations that everybody, all investors, um, particularly long-term investors, should be paying attention to um, and, you know, looking for ways to uh, structure their portfolios to uh, address and either reduce some of those risks or identify opportunities that um, will help the investment performance. And so that's kind of, uh, in my mind, like sort of well, at least one of the very important baseline considerations when we talk about what, what all of this is. So now that we have our, our toolkit, we've got the terms defined, could you walk us through a case study of a school that's taking impact investing, sustainable, responsible impact investing, SRI seriously? And we'd like to hear what does the process look like? What what is accomplished? What are the outcomes? And what are the ongoing challenges? And what were some of the hurdles? Yeah, absolutely. I think maybe I'll just sort of reference a few different ones because the process and the barriers and the outcomes can be so different. And there are so many ways to kind of think about this and go about it. Um, but some of the ones that have been really active and also very, um, you know, transparent in terms of what they're doing. So we have a, a somewhat clear sense of, of those processes uh, would include the University of California system. And they're, you know, a very large endowment. Um, and also those assets are combined with all the retirement funds and everything for the system. And so in total, it's, you know, close to $100 billion that they're managing. Um, and so that puts them in a very unique class of investor, obviously, a lot of different issues. And, you know, with a 10-campus system and lots of students and stakeholders and a public institution, all those types of factors um, come into play. But like on many campuses, I think, you know, at least in sort of recent years, the roots of their activities um, or at least sparked by student fossil fuel divestment movements um, around the time that the uh, movement was kind of really gaining steam there. Um, the system got a new chief investment officer. And so their team and the regents, you know, engaged with students and created a task force to look at these issues um, in a process, I think over a year or so kind of evaluated divestment questions specifically um, came out of that deciding not to have a formal you know, broad divestment policy, but really sparked a whole lot of great work um, around sustainable investing. And so they joined the Principles for Responsible Investment. Uh, they joined CDP, which is formerly the Carbon Disclosure Project, both of which are investor initiatives, um, you know, to support progress on these issues and just to really signal that they're, you know, taking these things seriously and taking some steps in these areas. They also committed to invest a billion dollars in climate solutions, um, which is you know, a, a big commitment and you know, one that I think they're still um, rolling out and, and uh, figuring out how they're going to do that. Um, but they took you know, just a lot of great steps and looked at this issue from a lot of different areas and hired a person to you know, kind of be the point and 
um, senior advisor to the CIO on these issues and developed a uh, sustainable investing framework that guides their thinking on this and also you know communicates to their stakeholders and the public about how they're thinking about it. So you know that's they're always doing more things and that is a process that continues to evolve. But I think just one great example of how you know a large institution with a large endowment is going about it. Um, you know, in some ways on the other end of the spectrum, in terms of size, Hampshire College, as I mentioned, you know, um, was instrumental in getting this whole thing going with us and uh, has a long history of focusing on this. And, um, you know, sort of, I think, from a culture and values perspective as an institution that um, it was, you know, this type of investing makes a lot of sense and it's kind of clear. And I think most of the administrators and board there saw this as a natural um, way to go for them. But still, you know, face challenges and are, you know, open and talking about, you know, what products are available in the market, uh, the transparency of some of those um, products. So, you know, they have the, most schools will use external investment managers um, to manage all or portions of their endowment. And, um, you know, sometimes it's difficult to know what those managers are investing in, so to really even know what, what you own indirectly. And so that's kind of a persistent thing that comes up in these conversations and one that Hampshire's really been working with their managers and consultant to address and, and help increase transparency in the space. Um, Becker College is another uh, very interesting example. You know, it's a, a small college in Worcester, Mass, um, with a, also with a small endowment, but it's the first to commit to going 100% for impact in their investing. Um, and I think that's something they're still you know, in a process of working out what exactly that means and looks like in different asset classes and the like. Um, but I think just a really interesting approach and, and a, you know, kind of a bold leadership position to put that commitment out there. Um, and again, to really, you know, talk about it and, and share with their stakeholders and others um, that they're working on this. And so that's another good example. Um, and another institution that I think, you know, is, kind of a natural fit for this type of thing. But I, I think that's really one of the things we need to see and are seeing in the space is that um, you need those sort of examples and innovators to start trying things and doing some things. Um, and even if they might be sort of the usual suspects, so to speak, uh, at least it shows some precedent and others can then say, you know, okay, this has been done. We're not going to be the first. And, and we have a little bit of a sense of what works and what doesn't. Um, so I think that's a really valuable uh kind of contribution to the field and again a, a great leadership position that some of those schools have have undertaken. And what's your experience working with schools that have outsourced investment management versus those where they're managing it internally or by a trustee? Is the process different? Are the challenges different? Um, would love to hear your experience with both. Yeah, yeah, I mean I think so. Um, and I, it can really depend on that consultant or outsourced CIO company, um, and also individuals within that company. You know, so some of these firms are quite large, and some of the consultants or individuals you know, might be really interested and really up to speed on these topics and can help make a process much, um, you know, much more smooth and effective, whereas others might you know, either just not be aware or not understand or just you know, really have concerns that doing this is going to hurt investment performance or otherwise have some negative outcomes um, and can really serve as a barrier to, to anything happening. Um, and so I feel like we hear and see a lot of examples of both. Um, you know, there's some sort of more 
kind of stark examples, I guess, where um, institutions will actually, you know, fire their manager or consultant and find if they're not being supportive enough on these issues and find others that are. Um, and so I think it didn't take too many examples of that happening for most of the firms to really start getting up to speed on this if they weren't already um, and making sure that they're prepared to serve clients that were really interested in this. So, I mean, I think we've seen a ton of change in that regard over, you know, just the three years or so that we've been working on this. Um, so I think that's a, a big development in the field and one that will really help, um, you know, move this into really more mainstream and critical mass of all investors. Do you feel that um, advisors um, are bringing forth to their clients um, climate climate risks and cr- climate risk analyses on their their on their portfolio, or do you still feel that it's up to the institution still to be that voice and um, ask these specific questions of their advisors? What type of dynamic is going on out there? You know, is it critical for institutions to be the voice, or are advisors? coming to the table um, with with this stuff yeah I think I think it's definitely still you know again it's hard to say or generalize but um, for the most part my feeling is that it's definitely still more up to the asset owner you know the school or the institution the endowment to raise these issues and and for stakeholders to raise these issues um, so that the, the board and investment committee then does prioritize it and, and bring it to the consultants or managers to implement. Um, but I do think, again, we are seeing, you know, sort of in the midst of a shift where more consultants and advisors are doing this for specific clients and I've seen some benefits or potential benefits and so are, are increasingly bringing up with other clients for whom it might not already be on the radar. Um, so yeah, I think we're seeing more of that, but it's probably still pretty rare compared to the other way around. If these investments, these sustainable investments, are more beneficial in the long term, correct me if I'm wrong here, would love your perspective, why are they not brought to the forefront by these investment companies? I mean, why are these not the go-to things they're presenting from schools? This is going to have a return on investment in the long run, bring you long-term stability. Um, Why are they not so forthright about this? Yeah, there's um, there are probably a lot of elements and answers to that, um, but I think, I mean, I mean, I guess we could start with the same reason why are we not sort of addressing all these sustainability challenges and everything we do? Um, they can be indirect or complex. You know, we, there's our economic system tends to externalize any costs that we can if there aren't rules saying we can't do that, um, and so I think there's some some perception that some of this might be regulation driven and investors don't want to get involved with that. Um, typically they don't want to sort of bet on regulations, but, uh, so I think that's a piece of it. Um, but I think increasingly, you know, in the business world, there's an increasing consensus that those external externalities will, will be internalized over time. And whether that's through regulation or through, um, you know, consumer preference or brand image um, or litigation concerns or other ways that those externalities kind of become internalized and, and get on the balance sheet and valuation of companies, that that's a trend that'll keep happening as, you know, more awareness and action around sustainability grows. Um, 
but I think, you know, we're still in the midst of a, a very big shift in society as a whole around that. And so I think, um, you know, there's just a, a common assumption or, or worldview or set of assumptions that, you know, uh, the way we've always done business is the way we always will. And so <clears throat> we don't need to think about those types of things that, you know, are sometimes referred to as extra financial or non-financial considerations. Although I'd argue they're very much financial, just maybe on a different time scale. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's kind of, of one of the big things. I mean, another one sort of more specifically in the investment context and in sort of the sustainable investing field is that a lot of the strategy around socially responsible investing in kind of the modern era of the last 40 years or so um, did start with excluding bad companies, you know, using negative screens to exclude specific companies or industries that, you know, investors didn't want in their portfolios. And so, you know, from an investor perspective, and I think sort of the, you know, conventional wisdom coming out of um, business schools and finance thinking is that when you limit your investment universe like that, you're going to you know, reduce your diversification and limit your options and therefore kind of almost by definition um, negatively affect your returns. And so I think that's a perception that's still very strong in the space, even though there are lots of different strategies that don't necessarily include exclusions. Um, and also just the fact that for most managers, you know, investment managers, that's sort of what they do is, is pick better investments and not pick other investments. And so that's, you know, I think the case that we in the field, um, continue on trying to make that, that again, depending on the approach, but when you think about integrating these, some of these factors into the investment decision-making process, it's really just looking at more information that could be material to the investment's performance and, and taking that into account when you make decisions. Mm-hmm. And um, talking about asset classes and diversification, is there an asset class that is easier to shift in closer alignment with, with the institution's values and mission you know, is there a starting point within the asset allocation for institutions that you're seeing? It's a great question. I don't know if if there are, if there's, I mean, I think there are opportunities in all asset classes. And so maybe depending on the portfolio construction or, you know, sort of investment beliefs and approach, um, there might be some asset classes or opportunities that are easier for some than others. Um I mean, one of the other sort of barriers and concerns that I think is still quite real is that, you know, there are fewer investment managers that really explicitly look at these issues in their investment process. There are more and more all the time. So that's another thing that's changing really quickly. Um, But I think, you know, there are fewer. And so that can be a challenge when endowments go to look at managers and, you know, want to pick the, the best that they can from a field of, you know, 15,000 managers or whatever it might be versus, you know, 500 or a thousand that kind of focus in this area that, you know, just the sort of numbers and ratios can be a concern. Um, but again, there is more and more evidence, both in sort of academic research and practice that these strategies, you know, perform as well or better than others. So, and there are again, more and more all the time, both in terms of new companies, um, starting with focus in this area and also sort of traditional, firms uh, creating new products or, or just integrating across this type of thinking across everything they do. So that piece is, is changing pretty quickly. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there, there are more and more strategies in the public equities markets that, um, you know, have longer track records, green bonds in the fixed income market, uh, as a class are, you know, again, more and more prevalent, um, and kind of maybe more comfortable in a sense, cause they're, they're more like traditional bonds in many ways. Um, and then I think, you know, in the kind of private markets and venture capital, private equity, project finance, um, there are certainly more and more um, opportunities and, and firms focused on that and really, you know, looking at, um, you know, the types of projects that are just, they'd be looking at regardless and recognizing that they're contributing to sustainability solutions. And so there are opportunities there that, you know, don't necessarily have to be a big change in the portfolio. Um but can also, you know, start to align the portfolio with uh, sustainability outcomes and long-term performance. Mm -hmm. Something that we've been thinking about um, is place-based, the place-based nature of these institutions and their role as anchor institutions within their communities and within their regions. And is there any conversation um, amongst your um, kind of network um, that's talking about local investing and place-based investing because we feel that there's an amazing opportunity for these anchor institutions to be investing in their local communities. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah, I do too. And it's, it definitely has come up. Um, not, you know, not a whole lot. And I think that's an area where there's a lot you know, more opportunity to sort of uh, foster those types of conversations. Um, and, you know, I know that's certainly happening, and I'm sure it's happening a lot more than what, than what we know of. Um, but, yeah, I think there are great opportunities in terms of investing in the local community and things like, you know, community development financial institutions um, or direct investments in the community and also direct investments in, uh, in themselves in some sense, which is another sort of theme that is coming up more and more as – Institutions look at these issues um, not only in terms of their endowment, but also you know throughout campus operations um, and that sort of context that that's, that all sets for the educational experience of students um, and the types of research opportunities that might open up. And so, I mean, one trend um, that we've been seeing over the past few years and really um, been sort of accelerated and driven in many ways by the Sustainable Endowments Institute and Mark Orlowski and their project uh, called the Billion Dollar Green Challenge, which works to uh, promote green revolving funds on campus. And um, those are funds that, you know, money can be spent and put into energy efficiency or renewable energy projects that have some cost saving or return over time, which can then repay the fund and, and be cycled into future projects. And so, some schools have used some endowment capital to seed those funds. Others have used capital from other sources. Um, but I think that's a really interesting model and and one where, you know, the, the returns are such that I think it can be compelling for endowments to start to think about doing that more. And, um, you know, I think there are certainly ways, as far as I understand, to do so that are, you know, completely appropriate in terms of, you know, fiduciary duty and thinking and looking at those and structuring those really as investments um, that both benefit the, institution, local community, um, but also can, you know, provide really decent returns for the endowment. 
So, George, what are some of the biggest misconceptions and myths around impact investing, socially responsible investing, um, that make people a little bit hesitant to take the leap? Well, I think there's several that kind of keep coming up continuously. Um, one of the things we do before our events and, and how we structure them, you know, we structure them to be very interactive and, and participant focused. And so we actually ask everybody before they come what their big concerns are on this topic or what their big questions are on this topic. And then we sort of, you know, collate all the responses and, and tease out themes that we then design the programs around. Um, and I'm, I think for every single one we've had, financial performance has always risen to the top. I mean, everyone obviously is very concerned that if these strategies aren't going to perform as well, um, that they, they don't want to do them. And so that is, I think, the biggest and, um, you know, kind of uh, most persistent one. And, you know, it's difficult to give a straight response to because all types of investment strategies can have wide variety of performance. You know, um, you can have two investment managers, you know, both sort of looking to employ the same strategy and one can do it really well and one can do it really poorly. Um, and I think the same is true in sustainable investing. So it's tough to say, you know, sustainable investing performs better because you could have, you know, very poor performing investor using sustainability criteria as part of their process. So it's hard to get, you know, a direct answer, but there is, there's certainly been more and more studies around performance. Um, and again, as there's a longer track record on some of these strategies, um, that evidence is becoming stronger and clearer. Uh, and so one of the things we've done is um, we hold a series of working groups on key topics as well, where we bring people together from the network to, you know, see how we can, address or provide resources that would be helpful for the field. And so we had one on financial performance that came up with a, a briefing paper um, called the, the Business Case for ESG that just sort of summarized some of these topics and also referred to some of the, the sort of best and most important reports in the space. And so that's also available on our website. Um, we have a whole section on financial performance in our resources section that includes that and other reports and studies. Um, and there have been a series of meta-studies that look at all the other studies and kind of um, show what the overall results are. And, and um, you know, the, the headline takeaway is that these strategies do perform as well, if not better, than sort of um, traditional strategies. We see these institutions, these anchor institutions, higher ed institutions, schools, and their missions are generally to do good. They want to do good things, produce students that can make positive impacts in the world. Um, what's, how do they align this mission with their endowment? Why are they not aligned? Yeah, so I mean, it's a great question, and it's really at the, at the heart of why I do this work and why we do this work is um, because, you know, education is such a core and fundamental piece of our society and our democracy and, and creating a, a healthy just thriving society. Um, and for many, endowment stability and strength is a big part of that. Um, and so, you know, I think the one thing that we always keep in mind, and, and I think it's really important to reiterate, is that all these trustees are serving at these schools because, for that reason, they, they value education, they value these schools, and they are, you know, dedicated in providing and often, oftentimes a lot of their their own resources in addition to their time to um, make these schools as effective and, and great as they can. And so 
I think where we see any kind of hesitancy around these types of topics, it's always coming from a good place of wanting to protect those institutions and, and the finances and the long-term stability and health of them. Um, and so, you know, I think that any sort of resistance to moving in this direction, again, comes from a good place. And where I think we've seen the conditions um, for, for more action and, and moving in this direction have been where there's been some champions on the board who can kind of um, allay those concerns uh, and show that, you know, not only can we move this direction without harming the financial returns of the endowment, but that it can also reinforce and support that mission, which at the end of the day is why everybody is there, um, is where, you know, we kind of see the most traction and excitement. And I think once that, you know, kind of flip is switched, there, there's a lot of exciting potential. I think we're going to see that in the next few years as more schools sort of go through this initial process of learning, okay, what is this all about? Um, you know, is it, is it going to, you know, okay, it's not going to return, uh, it's not going to lose its money, it's not going to violate our fiduciary duty. And in fact, um, I think, you know, more and more we're going to see, and we already are seeing the case being made that it's a, a part of fiduciary duty for trustees to be looking at these issues and taking these long-term uh, risks into consideration, um, both in terms of managing the endowment, but also in terms of operating the institution when we think about um, climate impacts and resiliency of campuses and those types of issues. So um, I think, you know, as that process continues, we'll just see more and more of this. And then we'll see a really exciting shift where um, a lot of this energy and focus will be going into overcoming some of this, the, you know, practical barriers that are there in terms of how to restructure this. And if there are, um, you know, kind of uh, logistical barriers to doing it, that we'll see those overcome pretty quickly. And, um, and I think, again, it's a big reason why we're doing this work is that, that colleges and universities and educational institutions in general, um, you know, not only have a lot of financial capital in, in the U.S., there's about $550 billion in endowment capital, um, but also tremendous social and intellectual and, and moral capital, really, that can influence how all those service providers and investment managers um, and the finance system as a whole thinks about these topics. And so I think we're kind of on the verge of seeing a lot of exciting changes in that regard as well. We think so too, George. Um, it's been an absolute delight talking with you. And we have just one last wrapping up question. What is the best piece of advice you could offer to fellow sustainability professionals or a interested trustee or CFO um, interested in this work? That's a great question. I don't know. Um, in terms of the best piece of advice I probably got just really more thinking about the sustainability professionals in the field was um, Carl Henrik Robert, who co-founded that master's program in Sweden I mentioned at the start, um, told us all that you know, when the, when the going gets tough and it will get tough that the pros keep going. And so that's something I've kept in mind. It's just the persistence needed to, to address some of these really, you know, fundamental ingrained, um, uh, worldviews or assumptions that have gotten us into sort of this on this unsustainable track and, uh, how it is really a, a long and persistent, um, process that's going to get us through to a sustainable future. So that's what I, try to keep in mind and, and uh, 
think about when, when progress seems too slow. Um, but, but yeah, it's, uh, well we will persist and we will persevere and we look forward to continuing the conversation with you george thanks so much thanks for your leadership in this field really appreciate it thank you guys so much for having me it's been a blast stepping back and summarizing our key takeaways we heard from george that both traditional and sri defined as sustainable responsible and impact investing approaches of investors have the same goal preserve long-term financial stability, and make schools as effective as possible. SRI is an evolving field, and the majority of investors are not well-educated on SRI, so there is a gap in knowledge, practice, and implementation, along with many misconceptions. A common concern is the return on investment for SRI strategies. Can SRI bring about the long-term financial stability that investment managers seek? The reality is there isn't a way to guarantee that SRI has a higher ROI because it's the success of a fund does depend largely on the individual who is handling the investments and their competency in investing. But there is a consensus that externalities are going to become internalized and get on the balance sheet. And there is more academic research and evidence that SRI strategies perform just as well, if not better, than traditional ones. Luckily, colleges like the University of California system with about $100 billion in their endowment, Hampshire College and Becker College are taking a leadership role in this field and paving the way for other institutions to make the conscious switch to SRI. They are doing this because they want to focus on risk mitigation, take into account resource scarcity, ecosystem and biodiversity loss, health impacts, all of the interrelated trends that have real and tangible impacts on how we govern, structure communities, and operate. These are things for long-term investors to be paying attention to and structuring portfolios around to address and reduce risks. If your institution is exploring and interested in learning more about SRI, Intentional Endowments Network is a great resource. And we're hoping to keep the conversation going with George as we observe the evolution of the field and learn more ourselves. That's a wrap for today. Thank you for listening to the Coalesce.Earth podcast. As always, we welcome your comments and questions. You can email these to me, Emily at coalesce.earth, and we'll be back with another episode soon.